Hi everyone and welcome to SAMA, a weekly program where we invite an expert to discuss a topic from their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Patrick McCowan to teach us how to breathe. Patrick is a well-renowned expert in the Boutico breathing method and author of eight best-selling books including The Oxygen Advantage, Close Your Mouth, Asthma Free Naturally, Anxiety Free, Stop Worrying and Quiet in Your Mind and Sleep with Boutico. Patrick is based in Galway, Ireland, and lectures extensively around the world. He is Director of Education at the world's foremost Boutico Breathing Method Clinic, the Boutico Clinic International, and has trained hundreds of Boutico practitioners since 2003. Patrick, you look too young to have been training people since 2003. So welcome to our summer, Patrick. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you, John. And the first thing I'm going to do is to shorten that bio. I don't know where you, where um, that came out of, but uh, yeah, that's a little bit um, off-putting. But yeah, no, thanks very much. I have been involved since 2002, just by chance, but that's, uh, that's how it happened, you know? Yes, yes. So we decided to give you a year to make you look, you know, not so old. <laughs> or The years are creeping up. Don't you work? Don't worry. <laughs> but you honestly look very young. Now, um, you are an expert on the Boutico breathing technique. Do you think that this has been part of the reason why you've kept your youth? I think, I think one of the things that age people is, is stress um, in a big way. Yes. And a lot of it is especially emotional and mental stress. Yes. And one of the things that, was, that benefited me from focusing on my breathing was quietness of the mind. And quietness of the mind and an ability to handle stress better in that if things go wrong, um, I don't tend to get as stressed or near as stressed as some of my counterparts. Now, I'm not saying that I don't get stressed, but I get stressed less. And I also have an ability to recover because of focusing on the breathing. Right. And that's one of those things, you know, when we're talking about breathing and normal autonomic functioning and the link between that, it's through the breath that you can really influence um, the functioning of, you know, systems and functions outside of your voluntary control. Right. Now, before we um, go further down this path, I'm going to create another path. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you get involved in breathing in the first place? What started you? What's, what was the seed that started your path in learning about breathing techniques? Sure. Um, from a childhood, I had asthma. And with asthma, I had also chronic nasal obstruction and sinus problems. Yes. And that's very normal and common. And I just realized now that I should have shut out my outlook. I just hear a ring from it there. That's very common because if you have asthma, it's not just isolated to the lungs. It very often travels up to the nose. Absolutely. It's a unified airway. And if your nose is stuffy, then your sleep is affected. So sleep researchers, and they know that if you have a stuffy nose or if you mouth breathe during your sleep, you are 1.8 times more likely to have a sleep problem. So I had asthma chronic stuffy nose, chronic mouth breather, and chronic sleep problem. And I went through secondary school, and I was on a lot of, quite a bit of medication. I came out of secondary school, had a couple of hospitalizations. Um, I went down to a university. I put a lot of effort into my own studying because when you have fatigue and poor sleep, you don't have the, the ability to concentrate yes. and to remember information as, in, as compared to an individual who has good quality sleep. So in short, I went through to university in Ireland called Trinity College in Dublin. I did a degree in economics and social sciences. I came out of that, 
And uh, I then read a newspaper article about this work of a Russian doctor. And he said two things. He said, breathe through your nose all the time and breathe lightly. And I never breathed through my nose. I was constantly having my mouth open. Right. And I used his exercise to open up the nose. You can decongest your nose if you have rhinitis, a stuffy nose, in five minutes from holding your breath. And I switched to nasal breathing now. I was feeling very suffocated when I first switched to nasal breathing. But I persevered with it. I used paper tape on my lips at night. And I woke up. <laughs> In two to, in, within the second or third morning waking up, I woke up with the best night's sleep ever. Really? So I was in the corporate world at the time because of my degree. I was working for an American multinational, and I absolutely hated it, John. And I really say multinationals, I think I really feel sorry for the employees of these companies because and now I'm going to go off and adjust a, a small little bit rant, but I'm going to come back to breathing, don't worry. Yep. You know, it was a multinational that's pretending to have an open door policy for employees to be looking after your employees. And all they were doing was absolutely milking and getting and getting the absolute most out of employees. Like, it's always interesting when I look at the age profile and I give talks to multinationals. And I look at the age profile and there's nobody there over 40 years of age in some of the companies. And the reason that they don't have employees over 40 years of age because the, the employees are burnt out. And it was like some guy, you know, I was talking to a father and the father has a son in Facebook and a daughter in LinkedIn or one of these companies. And they're saying, yeah, Facebook, they have chefs in. So you have your dinner and, you know, you're coming into the, into the, um, the chefs are coming into the companies so that the employees don't have to leave the company. It's not that the chef is provided to help the employee. The chef is provided so the employee doesn't have to leave, so the employee can literally work at their desk. And we have to bear this in mind. So my stress levels were pretty high, and I hated going into work of a Monday. And it was three years later that I said, my health was really improving at this point. Mm. I said, I'd love to bring this technique back into Ireland, the Buteyko method. And I contacted the Russian embassy because I, I didn't know anybody who was Russian. So I said, okay, I figure it. The best way to do it is contact the Russian embassy. And they were able to get me in touch with the people in Russia. So I went over there. Wonderful. So, long story short, since 2002, I've been teaching this full time. Oh, those are short. Finish. <laughs> That's fantastic. Right. Well, this, this is quite an interesting story. It's, it was, did it take some sort of, um, it's quite a paradigm step to go from working in a corporate environment to yes. doing your own thing, truly following your heart. Yes. To educate people. Intuitively, it really felt the right thing to do. Logically, it didn't. And I remember going into my father-in-law. I wasn't married at the time. My wife was just here a second ago. And I told him that I was leaving this corporate world because I was a young guy. I was in charge of a fairly big budget. I had a number of employees under me. Um, and it seemed mad. I had company car, all of these so-called prospects in life. Yes. But it was the best thing I ever did, starting off my own small little business, working for myself. And it was a tremendous change in my life. And I found something that I love to do and it really, really makes a difference. And I'm fortunate and, you know, I'm, I'm always thankful for it because I can only sympathize with people who have to endure 40 years of work in a job that's not suited for them. 
and working under employers, etc. Um, and I'm not saying that all employers are that way. We have our own staff, but you know, sometimes <laughs> just differences. Yeah. <laughs> we won't go there. Um, uh, no, I, 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 um, a question from Helen McConnell, and this is just O'Connell. You must be from Ireland, Helen. Now, just a um, a quick comment too. If anyone is watching out there on Facebook, you can ask your questions just underneath the live stream video, just in the comment section under there, and the, your questions will be forwarded to me. Now, um, Helen asks, um, uh, do you believe that there's a link between breathing problems and trauma? And if so, to share your insights on that. Yes. Um, the first documented accounts of chronic hyperventilation syndrome were happened as a result of the American Civil War. Yes. And it was an American physician called Da Costa, D-A-C-O-S-T-A. And he noted that soldiers who were returning from the front line, that they exhibited symptoms of fatigue and breathlessness. Now, that then, the name then changed in 1937 to hyperventilation syndrome. And then in the 1990s, it changed to breathing pattern disorders or dysfunctional breathing. If we are exposed to long-term stress, when we are stressed, our breathing changes. We breathe faster and we breathe up our chest. Yes. And if we're exposed to long-term stress, even when the stress is changed and, and removed, the breathing pattern remains. Mm. So when I'm working with people, say, who have had trauma or people with anxiety, people with panic disorder, I always often see that it's very common for me to see fast, a faster respiratory rate and more upper chest and yes, you could say that it's stress and anxiety that's changing their breathing patterns. But we also know that if you're breathing fast in upper chest, it's feeding back into anxiety. Because two things, slow breathing. Um, Stanford Medical School identified a new structure in the brain in March of 2017. And they said that this structure is spying on your breath and the locus corollis. And if you breathe fast, this structure in the brain is relaying signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. So slow breathing is very important. And I'll just go a little bit more detail in a second on that. Yes. And the other thing is diaphragmatic breathing. And I know people talk about taking a deep breath, but when people are told to take a deep breath, they usually take this big breath. It's not about taking a big breath because that changes the biochemistry of breathing. But it's about taking a deep breath using the diaphragm. But basically the three things with the breath should be in and out through the nose, driven by the diaphragm. It should be slow light and deep and there's a myriad of research looking at post-traumatic stress disorder etc slowing down the cadence of the breath to six breaths per minute is the ideal way to bring the body um, back into normal function and if you look at the research on heart rate variability on respiratory sinus arrhythmia and the baroreceptors and this Respiratory sinus arrhythmia, even though it sounds a little bit complex, it's not. It's the synchronicity of your breathing to your heart. Yes. And when we take a breath in, it's normal for the heart rate to speed up. And when we have an exhalation, it's normal for the heart rate to slow down. We can stimulate that by changing the, the cadence of the breath to six breaths per minute. And anybody who's, who's suffering from post-traumatic stress or trauma, or anxiety, I would really encourage you start breathing through your nose, start just gently slowing down your breathing um, and even slow it down to a cadence. So you're say you're taking your breath in for two 
three, four, and out, three, four, five, six, and then in, two, three, four. But have your two hands at your lower ribs and breathe really slowly in and really slowly out. Don't take big breaths because breathing is not just about diaphragmatic breathing. Breathing is also including the biochemistry of the breath. And if you breathe too hard, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood and this causes blood vessels to constrict. So don't have the belief that the more air you breathe, the better it is for you. It's not that way at all. Breathing should be light. Hmm. Now, Helen asks another question. It's very interesting. Can proper breathing resolve traumatic reactions as they're happening? In other words, if you're... Yes. Um, it's, I can't give you a full answer on that. But what I would say that I think it's, it's difficult in the face of stress to have your attention. I think if, you, if a person is very much in presence, they would be able to do it that when they are confronted with a stressful situation, to immediately bring their attention onto their breathing and to immediately, immediately slow down the breath. It would be a great way to deal with a confrontation um, in terms of if you say you were confronted with somebody and that person is giving, giving out to you, and if you're immediately bringing all of your attention or as much of it as you can into the inner body and onto the breath, you're almost putting a shield that you're not going to react to that person. You're able to hear what they say. You're able to formulate a response. You're able to remain calm in confrontation. Now, that would take some practice. Um, I would say that it would be best for people to start off doing it with very small events in their life. So, and a good way to do it would be to watch something on TV, a program called EastEnders where they're constantly fighting and shouting and crying. So if you want to see, um, you know, so if you look at a soap opera and when you see all of the hostility on the soap opera, which apparently is reflective of modern life, but I wouldn't like to be living in that situation. Mm. Uh, looking at that hostility in the soap opera and when you're watching the TV, bring all of your attention inwards and shield yourself from that. And even just start with that. And then when you are confronted in real life to immediately bring your attention inwards, I think it would be a great skill to be taught to kids and that children would have a way of dealing with stress that they could the tool for the rest of their life. I wonder why there are programs like uh, those soaps where they had the stress thrown outside the screen. <laughs> it's, I wouldn't call it entertainment. They'll be terrible. And I, and I don't watch it. Yes. I don't know the EastEnders, but uh, it's probably like other ones that I do know where... Yeah, okay, you just have to um, experience real life to get stressed. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm just going to relax in front of the TV. Oh, there, here we go. Here we go. But that's probably a good way. And um, yeah, because it's, 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 you're not interacting with the, with the, with the person, with the, with the source of the stress, but your, your reaction to it is what you can focus on. Yes, it is. And just it's developing that. It's, it's developing that immediate reaction it's not a really, really reacting. It's more that you're proactive. You're, you're feeling that, that you're seeing the confrontation in front of you, yes. but you're not surrendering all of your attention to it. The person that's causing the confrontation is not drawing you into it because you're able to remain fully present in the stillness and the intelligence of the human body. And I know it sounds new agey, but you know, breathing and these things like 20 years ago when I started this, 
um, I started working in this field. It seemed to be on the fringes. But now it's amazing, John, the, the mainstream individuals. Like I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, I was in Santa Monica and I gave a one-day training. And we had some SWAT members there, Special Weapons and Tactics. And we've trained a couple of these guys as well. And these guys are going into the most stressful situations. And they have to maintain focus because if they make a mistake, somebody could be shot. That's the reality of it. These guys have tremendous physical capabilities because we use the breathing exercises for improving sports performance, but also focus of the mind. And the other thing that we look at with them is their sleep. And while we had SWAT guys there, we also had MMA fighters. We also had CrossFit members. We had yoga instructors. And, you know, it's amazing that you have a collective body of people who now, breathing now, they are embracing breathing because it's the application of it. You know, we're doing recovery. We're talking about recovery. We're talking about stimulating altitude training. We use breath holding to drop the blood oxygen saturation to disturb the blood acid base balance to improve buffering capacity. And all of these things are done through simple breathing techniques. And it's important that people understand the science behind breathing. There's a lot of people who talk about breathing and they don't understand the science behind it. And all I'd say is, if you want to improve oxygen delivery to your cells, and if you want to improve vasodilation, if you want to improve your blood circulation, I'll even give you an exercise here that you could be trying. Okay. So if you were to put one hand on your chest yep. and just put one hand on just above your navel yep. and start focusing on the airflow coming into the nose and focus on the airflow as it leaves your nose and focus on the airflow coming into the nose and focus on the airflow leaving the nose and then start really slowing down the speed of the breath coming into the nose and at the top of the breath bring such a feeling of relaxation to the body that you have a relaxed breath out and take, take a very soft, slow breath into the nose. And at the top of the breath, you bring such a feeling of relaxation to the body that you have a relaxed breath out. The objective is that you're taking less air than, than what you need. So what I would like you to do is gently soften your breathing to the point that you feel air hunger. And check what happens to your blood circulation. Can you influence your body temperature? And can you influence also um, your autonomic nervous system, not by taking the big breaths that's commonly espoused. I want people to try doing the opposite and see what happens. When you really slow down your breathing to the point that you're taking less air than what you need, to the point that you're feeling breathless, carbon dioxide increases slightly in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases, your blood vessels dilate. So don't have a belief that the more air you breathe, the more oxygen is going to deliver, be delivered to your cells. It's not true. If you take big breaths, big breaths in and out, you feel lightheaded because your blood vessels are reacting. They're constricting. So your blood vessels constrict when you breathe hard. It's uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? So it is. Yes. And, it, you know, this is not new stuff. The, back in 1904, Christian Bohr was a Danish biochemist. And he discovered the importance of carbon dioxide in the blood, that the release of oxygen from the red blood cells is dependent on the presence of carbon dioxide. But yet, I have to say, and I'm not going to target specifically the entire yoga industry, but I am going to say how many yoga instructors tell their clients and students to take full, big, big breaths or breathe hard. Because 
this breathing hard is not increasing oxygen uptake. We use pulse oximetry all the time. We're measuring blood oxygen saturation. It's a very simple device. I don't have one just at hand, but it's a very simple device. And you will see with normal slow breathing, your blood oxygen saturation is 95 to 99%. It's already fully saturated. And if you breathe hard, you don't increase the oxygen uptake by hemoglobin because it's already almost fully saturated, but the hard breathing gets rid of carbon dioxide. And as a result, the red blood cells hold on to oxygen more readily. And that's called the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. And I'll give you a story. We had a, a there was a woman in Seattle. Um, her name is Robin Rottenberg. And she's a yoga instructor for 30 years. And she'd be fairly well respected in, in her field of yoga. And she developed, I think it was chronic fatigue or sleep apnea, sleep apnea and asthma about five or six years ago. And she was using her yoga practices, but her yoga practices were inclusive of taking bigger breaths. Yes. So she came across the Buteco technique, which is pretty much saying the opposite, mm. but it's not saying breathe shallow. People often confuse that, and I will talk about that, that later. So she applied it, and she was able to make a dramatic recovery in her health. So she came over to Ireland. She stayed with me for a couple of weeks doing our training. And then she went back to the States and she got a fairly big book publishing deal. And she took a lot of time off and she went to Costa Rica and she studied and researched her book and wrote her book. It's going to come out in December of this year. It's called Restoring Prana. So Restoring Prana. And she looked and investigated the original sutras from yoga. Yeah. The one thing that yogi said, they said was to breathe subtle, breathe light, breathe almost at the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. They, did, they said, do not breathe hard. And why is hard breathing became such so much of an epidemic? And she's trying to answer that question because she's saying originally when yoga was founded, whether it was 2,000 years, 2,500 years ago, it was all about subtle breathing. What's happened that we have, if we go into a yoga studio, and I'm not saying it's all, because there are plenty of yoga instructors that really do know the biochemistry and the biomechanics of breathing. But if I would go into a yoga studio, if I could hear people taking these big breaths inside in that yoga studio, I would really ask the question, does the teacher understand fully the biochemistry of breathing? And when we're looking at the breath, yes, we do need to get the biomechanical side of it with lateral expansion the lower two ribs not just the frontal part at the abdomen but the lower two ribs as we breathe in that the ribs are gently expanding and as we breathe out the ribs are gently contracting but also the biochemistry of breathing and um, we need to be looking at both do you do meditation patrick do i do meditation yourself yes yes i did it for many many years um, I don't necessarily meditate formally, but I'll often meditate at different pockets. So I don't make a practice of religiously now doing it. But I will say this. If I go for a walk or if I'm in stillness or even if I'm in a situation like this, I'm not caught up in my mind to the same extent as what I would have been 20 years ago. That. I often make it a habit of periodically throughout the day to bring my attention out of my mind into my body. I'm not very good at formalities, um, but I like to try and bring the approach into my way of life. And it's, it has worked pretty successfully for me. You know, I've seen people meditate and they'd meditate for a half an hour in the morning 
and they, they would be nuts for the rest of the day. <laughs> Whereas I think it's much better. Bring meditation into your life. And what is meditation only? You're, you're taking your attention out of the mind into the body or out of the mind into the present moment that we're communicating with life through our senses as opposed to be fully stuck in our heads. And that's the way I was for 20 years, John. I think education, it teaches us how to think. It teaches us how to analyze, to reason, to, to break information into tiny pieces. And it gives, it's training the mind how to think. But if you train the mind how to think, we, almost, we also must train the mind how to stop thinking. We're teaching children how to think, but we are not teaching children how to stop thinking. And I'm not talking about stopping thinking like being a vegetable. I'm talking about being selective about the thought processes that we are going through our minds. As humans, we have an innate capacity to think, but most of our thoughts are not productive thoughts. Um, I think psychologists estimate we have about 70,000 thoughts per day and 90% of them are repetitive and useless. And yet we never stand back and we never stand back and ask, what am I thinking about at this moment? What's going on in that mind of mine? And I'm not talking about doing a PhD on thoughts and on the minds because that's gone into academia. I'm talking about tasting the mind. I'm talking about observing it and you know, getting a realization of the effect that your thought processes are having on you and also that you have the capacity, once you become aware of your thinking, and once you start becoming aware of your unproductive thoughts, that you're able to bring your attention more readily out of the mind onto the breath, or out of the mind into the present moment. Um, the mind is, it, everything we perceive in life is filtered through our minds. And yet nobody has shown us simple techniques of how to become more in control of the mind. Are we in control of the mind or is it the mind in control of us? And again, these things, you know what that is? It's a mind control device. I was just about to say that. And the uh, thing that we're both looking into now, they're mind control yes. devices as well. Yes, these are amazing devices for mental health. <laughs> Watch this space. You know, we already, uh, in terms of the distraction, it's absolutely unbelievable how internet technology, and it has been very positive in our lives as we were able to use it here, that we can reach out and we can share information. But the downside to that is the distractions, the alerts, the um, text messaging, the so much overload of information. And the mind is losing its capacity to concentrate. And if you Google this study, that was published first in 2002. It's called the Goldfish Study. You've probably heard about it. But Microsoft, they looked at the attention span of 3,000 Canadians in 2002, and they found that the attention span was 12 seconds. And I'm not saying that Canadians have a bad attention span. Well, we've heard other countries are 20 seconds, but carry on. But they repeated the same study in 2012, and they found that the attention span had dropped down to eight seconds. Oh, gosh. And they call it a goldfish study because a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. Now, here's the 25% drop in our ability to hold our attention on a specific subject for a period of time. And if our ability to hold our attention is reducing, it means that the repetitive and incessant thought activity of the mind is increasing. 
And if we have a lot more repetitive thoughts coming into the mind and the mind is getting being trained to be distracted, it means that stress and anxiety is going to increase with that. Because individuals who are in a state of stress or chronic stress and chronic anxiety, they have a lot of thought activity going through their mind. And are we training the next generations to be so distracted that their stress and anxiety is going to go through the roof? Really watch this space. And I think this is where breathing is going to come in because breathing is the one thing. You take your attention out of the mind onto your breath. You're training the brain to hold its attention on the breath for a period of time. And you're able to counter some of the, the negative aspects of, you know, social media, etc. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but what I'm saying is it's making a concerted effort. And I knew that I was getting frustrated with it when I started off because I had such a tendency to think. And when I would focus on my breathing, my mind would wander and I would focus on my breathing, my mind would wander. And that's normal. But as you continue to practice it, the ability improves. It's almost that you're training a muscle in the brain. And if I'm giving a large a talk to, say, 500 or 400 people, before the talk, I will bring my attention into the, my part of the brain to bring myself into stillness. And I'm more likely to go in and give the talk in a focused and concentrated manner. We have a muscle. And I'm not sure if this is the right terminology. It could be neuroplasticity. It could be that you're just forming new neural pathways. But to be able to activate a part of the brain and just by focusing on your breathing that you can develop this part of the brain that when you do need it, you can bring your attention there. So don't lose heart for any of you who want to start focusing on your breathing. It's normal for your mind to wander. Don't expect instant gratification. This is a, a delayed gratification. You're not setting a goal with this one. The goal is to practice. So just practicing it, even if you're just practicing, holding your attention on your breathing for two seconds, it's still two seconds that you've had your attention out of the mind on the breath. Wow. Why is it so bad to breathe through the mouth? Mouth breathing, number one is if you open your mouth there and take a breath through it and look down at your chest and diaphragm. It's gone still. Okay. Well, mouth breathing activates the upper chest. So say for instance, if your listers, if they were to look down at your chest yes. and take a breath through the mouth, you'll see that the mouth is directly connected with the upper chest. Blood flow in the lungs is concentrated in the lower regions. So if we're mouth breathing, we're ventilating the upper parts of the lungs, but the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower lobes. Okay. So Swift in 1988, they looked at the, the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. Now, this isn't the SpO2, this is the PO2, which is a little bit different. But they found that the PO2 in the blood increased by 10% in nasal breathing. So nasal breathing is connected not only with improving oxygen uptake, but also with oxygen delivery. Nasal breathing is with slow breathing, which is very helpful for the mind. Nasal breathing is directly connected with the diaphragm, and nasal breathing is more efficient. For sleep, any of your listeners who wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, they don't wake up feeling refreshed. They're more likely to snore. They're more likely to stop breathing during their sleep, condition called sleep apnea. Um, and mental health, sleep, recovery, 
And overall resilience of the individual is very much influenced by nasal breathing. And with children, children who mouth breathe develop, are more likely to develop craniofacial abnormalities, including crooked teeth, larger nose size, as you see, bent nose because my jaws aren't forward enough in my face, because it's the tongue in the correct resting position that's driving the development of the growth of the face forward. So we have to think of the tongue as the scaffolding for the roof of the mouth. As mouth breathers, our tongue drops because we're breathing through the mouth, so we can't have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And as a result then, it's the pressures exerted by the cheeks and by the lips on the face that are causing the face to grow in length, but also to jaws to be set back. And then we have smaller airways. So I have a very poor airway as a result of the anatomical changes that took place from mouth breathing during childhood. And we also know that mouth breathing children are more sleepy. And if we're sleepy, we're more at risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder because of the connection there. And also 10 times the risk of um, learning difficulties. And I can send you on some papers. You know, the doctor, the main doctor in sleep medicine was a doctor called Dr. Christian Gimeno. And he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea back in the 1970s. Now, sadly, he passed away two, two weeks ago or about three weeks ago. But since 2015, his, he has been writing papers about the critical importance of nasal breathing and pediatrics. And I give, you know, I talk to dentists and I talk to medical doctors and I give a talk to ENTs, ear, nose and throat consultants um, in Madrid in, earlier of this year. And I explain that children are having tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy very commonly because to help with their sleep. Um, these children, they may have enlarged adenoids, which is at the back of the nose. And as a result, they're not able to nasal breathe. And if they have enlarged tonsils as well, they're more likely to be stopping breathing. And the children have very fragmented sleep and they're waking up exhausted. The children don't grow to the same extent they don't develop. The surgeons are removing tonsils and adenoids, but they're not restoring nasal breathing. And it was Dr. Gimeno said, if you remove the tonsils and adenoids of kids, it's only short term. There's a 68% chance of relapse within three years unless nasal breathing is restored. And I gave that talk and we had 150 ENTs and I showed them the nose unblocking. And of course, they found it, some of them, I could know by their reactions in the audience, they found it amazing. There are doctors working in the, with the nose and they weren't familiar with how do you decongest your nose by simply holding your breath. Written about since 1923. But I also told them, I didn't tell them, but I just, I brought it up. It's not, if you fix the nose, it doesn't mean that you automatically breathe through it. Because if a child or if an adult has been mouth breathing for more than six months, they've developed a breathing pattern disorder. It's not just about fixing the nose. It's also about breathing rehabilitation and breathing retraining. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Hey, can we talk about this unblocking technique now? We've talked about it twice. Yes, of course. Yeah. So don't do it if you're pregnant. I know you're not pregnant, John, but if any of our females are pregnant um, or if people have high blood pressure or any serious medical complaints, don't do it. But it's very simple and it's a very normal thing to do. It simply is involving holding of the breath. So you take, well, first of all, you can check which, which side of the nose is blocked. So block one nostril, breathe through it, and block the other nostril and breathe through it. And you'll notice that one nostril is more blocked than the other. That's normal. So 
take a normal breath in through your nose and normal breath out through your nose. Pinch your nose with your fingers, yeah. hold your breath, and gently nod your head up and down for as long as you can. And keep holding your breath. Keep holding it. Keep going. Keep holding your breath until you're, you're really struggling for breath. Then let go, but breathe in through your nose. And it's clear. Is that at that point? It, it will clear up, certainly, but in about three to four repetitions. So oh. what we do is, so we'll do it again. We take a normal breath in through the nose, normal breath out, pinch the nose, hold the nose. Stop breathing. And then you gently nod your head up and down as you hold your breath. And you keep on nodding your head and keep on holding your breath for as long as you can. And then you let go, but breathe in through your nose. Make sure to breathe in through the nose because... Okay. There's a gas called nitric oxide that's after accumulating in the nasal cavity, and we want to bring that nitric oxide into our lungs. But yeah, five or six strong breath holes will open up the nose. And then when you breathe through your nose, your nose is more likely to stay more open because we, it's not about breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth because when we breathe in through the nose, the body has expended an energy in moistening and warming the incoming air. Yes. And when we breathe out through the nose, the body, the nose is there to trap that heat and moisture on the exhale breath. So there's a 42% greater water loss if we breathe out through the mouth. And water is, of course, very important for the human being. But your nose is designed to remove the moisture from the breath on the exhalation, to retain that moisture inside in the body. So individuals who sleep with their mouths open, they wake up with a dry mouth dry throat, inflammation of the throat, especially if they've had a few beers and they're snoring all night, increased snoring as a result of mouth snoring, you know, the soft palate at the, at the back of the mouth. Yes. Um, nasal snoring can also be contributory. The tongue is falling back into the airway. Yes. The, the person is having fragmented sleep. They're more likely to go to the bathroom and they're waking up tired in the morning. And mouth breathing, that, this is where I change, you know, I realized that, yeah, not just my asthma was changing back in nearly tw almost 20 years. Well, it's 20 years ago. Not just my asthma, but my sleep profoundly improved. And remember, we talked about trauma earlier on. Yes. I'm often amazed with psychologists, psychotherapists. They don't often look at breathing pattern disorders in their client population. And they don't look at sleep. And I could have people coming in with depression, anxiety, panic disorder. And I asked the people, I said, how do you wake up? How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Mm -hmm. And they will tell me that they wake up exhausted. Very commonly, they wake up exhausted in the morning. Yes. But their healthcare professional is thinking that, well, it's the anxiety that's causing the exhaustion. It's the depression that's causing the exhaustion. It's their high stress that's causing the exhaustion. But then I'm wondering, is it the exhaustion that's causing the anxiety? Is it the exhaustion that's causing the depression? Is it the exhaustion that's contributing to the high stress? Right. Because unless you've got a good quality and a deep, deep sleep, you are not going to recover as quickly. Um, we really need to get quality of sleep. And what I mean is completely dark bedrooms. Like I'm in a hotel room at this moment and the light switches emit this light and it's no exaggeration. I got up last night and I taped over the light switches. So <laughs> a, completely, a completely dark bedroom. I want a completely silent bedroom. I want an airy bedroom. I don't want to be looking into these devices, you know, late at night. Yeah. But I also want to have my mouth shut and I tape up 
You still do that. You still do that. 20 years later. Now, I don't have to, by the way, but I developed a crutch with it. Um, so it made it was it was night and day for me literally when I switched to nasal breathing and using just paper tape I was getting it in the chemist um, now there's products in the market of course and I'll give you a story of where we're coming that we people used to think we were totally daft taping our lips <laughs> you wouldn't but, have, you would have looked the sight wouldn't you did anyone take any photos of you sleeping <laughs> well it's, people would say well how did you get married how did you have a romance life when your man taped up every that was night? my next question and, and but we can answer that in youtube but call. the only thing is like if you have your mouth taped up you're less likely to be talking during your sleep yeah but also <laughs> you're less likely to be snoring yes and you're less likely to be having sleep apnea so and the other oh. thing is you've got better circulation like for years i used to have cold hands which is very common and cold feet so you jump into bed and of course your partner is moving the other side. So you're not going to, you're not going to be wrapping your hands around anybody if they're freezing cold. <laughs> so get, get your mouth closed. And also for the male, it's very important that the man nasal breathes. And I won't say too much because I won't be too crude on it, but nasal breathing, the man should wake up happy every morning, literally. Um, so in terms of the nose and erectile dysfunction, there is a connection there. Ah. We don't know, is it because of nitric oxide? Like there's a gas that's emitted into the nasal cavity mm. and that gas is the same gas that plays a role in Viagra Yes, because it's a vasodilator. But we don't know, is it the gas from the nose by breathing through it mm. or is it just that you have a better sleep and that you have less sleep disorder breathing because men who are suffering from ED more likely their sleep is a problem and it's their quality of sleep. Are they stopping breathing, which is putting their body under a lot of stress? Right. And as a result, they don't have normal autonomic functioning. So autonomic functioning of the man is very in much, you know, it's good feedback if the man is waking up happy in the morning. Right. <laughs> so the taping, just to give you this example, Shark Tank is an investor program that's in the United States. It's called Dragon's Den in the UK. And it's, it's very, very well watched. And basically, there's a, there's a series of investors there. And some guy comes in and he has a business idea and he makes a pitch. And he's hoping that the investors will invest. Well, two doctors, they developed a tape called Somnifix. And they approached Shark Tank in the United States, tapered them out. And Mark Cuban, I think, he invested $500,000 for a 20% stake in the company. So he valued this mouth taping company at two and a half million dollars. Now, we were the ones who have been telling our clients to do it for 20 years. And I suppose my biggest regret commercially, because I'm so bad at business, was that I didn't come up with a tape for the mouth. But it shows you where it's going, because people are now realizing the impact of nasal breathing during sleep. Never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. Hmm. Well, I guess you wouldn't need to use special tape, would you, for your mouth? 20 years ago, you would have used something very simple, maybe tape, or what your wife normally puts over your mouth to help with that. You can go to a chemist and you can pick up a simple tape. It's called 3M, one-inch micropore tape. Just ask the pharmacist for one-inch paper tape. And all you're doing is taking off a strip of about 10 centimeters or six inches. Yeah. And just fold a tab either side of it. Make sure your lips are together yes. and to put the tape across the lips. Now, don't use it in kids. Um, don't use it if you've been using alcohol, if you have a tummy upset. 
you know so for children we we are developing a tape for kids but we cannot cover the mouths just in case there's too much of a high risk if the child got sick um so so yeah not for children but certainly for adults um, and even say for maybe kids over 12 years of age, I'd feel very comfortable that, yeah, they're old enough that they could pull it off. It's only paper tape, okay. um, but it's, it's amazing. And, you know, for, for parents, I'd say just keep an eye on your children if they're breathing through them out. During the day, we do encourage parents to put a piece of paper tape across the lips of the children during the day. And it's not to keep them quiet but it's just to establish neuroplasticity. We want the brain to connect the nose with breathing. So whenever, whenever the child is watching TV, that they're, they're there with their mouth hanging open, just is put on, get the child to wear the paper tape for maybe 20 minutes, a half an hour per day. And do it, you know, for most days, just to try and make sure that you, um, that you have, get that connection. And do your research on this. Mouth breathing and the effect on children has been known since 1909. Dental Cosmos is a dental journal, and it, it wrote about the effect of mouth breathing causing crooked teeth. Children are unattentive in school. They're waking up with a headache. Um, they're, they're, they're dull and unexpressionless. Like it changes the shape of the face as well. It's really, really, really important that we get the message out there of the importance of nose and breathing, because I have to say most doctors and most dentists are unaware of it, but there are some dentists who are really getting behind it. Um, I just gave a talk for two days to 58 dentists here in, not in, I'm in Singapore now, but I just came from Sydney. And before that I was in surfers paradise and gave a talk to 58 dentists there because they are, the dentists now are really getting involved with sleep. And wow. sleep and breathing go hand in hand. Wow. You talked before about breathing shallow breaths. Is there a yes. way, your, your interpretation of the word shallow may be different to other people's. Is there a way that people can know what is the correct amount to breathe in, the volume of air to breathe in? Yeah, shallow breathing, well, the exercises, when I'm teaching breathing exercises, I will give a series of breathing exercises to cause the person to breathe shallow. In other words, I will have them breathe so light, so, so little air. And the reason being is what I'm doing is I have some exercises where I want to change the biochemistry of breathing. I can say one of the exercises might be is to breathe in a half an inch of air breathe out a half an inch of air, breathe in a half an inch, breathe out. And that's literally just to increase carbon dioxide in the blood to reduce the body's sensitivity to the gas because it's carbon dioxide that stimulates your breathing, not oxygen. Okay. We don't breathe to bring in oxygen. The stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide. And if we have a strong response or a strong sensitivity to carbon dioxide, it means our, our breathing is heavy. And if our breathing is heavy, we we get disproportionate during physics. So I want to change the individual's biochemical sensitivity to the gas CO2. And, you know, if you look at the work of, say, Italian cardiologist Bernardi, and he's since retired now, but he's about 500 papers published on PubMed. And he used to see that his patients with chronic heart failure, 
that they had exercise intolerance and they had a lot of um, exertional breathlessness. So they, you know, they weren't they weren't comfortable doing physical exercise. And many doctors will say, well, the person's heart is not functioning the way it should be, and as a result, they are more breathless. Mm-hmm. But he asked the question, is it the biochemistry of their breathing that has somehow changed here? And how about if I change the biochemistry of the breath? And that's what we do with people with asthma, people with anxiety, people with panic disorder, people who, even athletes, who have dysfunctional breathing patterns, they're gassing out too soon, they've got increased muscle tension, increased muscle fatigue. So, John, back to your question. We do very reduced breathing, which could be construed as being shallow to change the biochemistry of the breath. But then we also do deep breathing with light breathing to change the biomechanics. And then we bring the two in together. And then we do cadence breathing of six breaths per minute to stimulate the bioreceptors or to improve autonomic um, functioning. So we do isolated shallow breathing, but that's only to change the biochemistry. And the reason being, if I get somebody in and if they're breathing fast and shallow, if I start teaching them to breathe deeply using their diaphragm, but also to slow down their breathing to get air hunger, too many things going on. They're not going to get it. So what I would either do at the start is I'll get them to breathe diaphragmatically. So we look at the biomechanics. And when they have the hang of that, then we will do very reduced breathing to get the biochemistry or vice versa. Start off with biochemistry and then biomechanics. Right. Athletes. Yes. Wish I was one. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I'm not one either, but some time ago, you know, most of my work from 2002 until 2008 was with asthma. And then I was working a lot with people with sleep problems and then with panic disorder because, you know, even with panic disorder, there's a huge gap there. 75% of people with with anxiety and and panic disorder have dysfunctional breathing patterns, 75%. And unless their breathing is improved, Mm. it's only feeding back into it. Now with athletes, athletes too can be prone to dysfunctional breathing because it's your normal everyday breathing, which is influencing your breathing during sports performance. And if you have an athlete who is under stress or a predisposition to anxiety, or maybe eating the incorrect foods, or believing that it's good to be taking big breaths, yes. that athlete can develop poor breathing patterns, and those poor breathing patterns will translate into breathing inefficiency during physical exercise. The athlete gas is out too soon, the athlete is plateauing. No matter what they do, physical training does not change your breathing. But if you change your breathing, it improves your physical training. So a few years ago, I started working on a book called The Oxygen Advantage. And I was lucky in that um, the book got published by a major publisher, um, HarperCollins in the United States. It's since gone into 14 languages. And for, for health, it's all about buteco. But for sports, it's all about oxygen advantage. And I found it interesting, you know, when I was giving mindfulness and I was using mindfulness with Buteco and giving the courses for a number of years in Ireland. And we had a lot of people come in, about 2,000 over the, over the couple of years. I was always fascinated. 90% of the people coming in were young females. No males, very few males would come in. Mindfulness wasn't attracting any, very few men. 
couple yeah. here and there. And I said, it's men that have the biggest problem with mental health. In Ireland, more men are dying by suicide than females. That females have a better ability to deal with stress and anxiety than men. But where are the men? They're not doing the meditation, or at least they weren't coming in to me to do meditation. So the oxygen advantage, it's, it's a specific technique with different slight, there is, there is differences to the exercises, but it's focusing on the breath for improved sports performance to increase resilience. But I'm slipping in meditation in the back door. Okay. So the man that comes in and in oxygen advantage, we have 90% male. And the reason being is because some of the exercises are very tough that we're doing breath holding and we're doing running and we're doing sprinting with breath holding and we can drop the blood oxygen saturation down to, well, the lowest we've dropped down to is 53%, which happened just about a week ago, but typically we want about 85%. 85% is severe hypoxia. So we can stimulate anaerobic glycolysis to get the body to make adaptations. But the one thing about, that I like about the oxygen advantage, we can impart a breathing technique to focus and concentration of the mind without the man having to do formal meditation. And I think it's serving a purpose there. There's a form of meditation, which is um, embryonic breathing, where you don't actually breathe. Uh, you don't breathe at all, really. It, it's, it's, you absorb it through your, through your body, your oxygen needs. Have you heard of this? Have you? No, I haven't. I'd be fascinating to, because... If you don't breathe, carbon dioxide is going to increase in the blood as it's coming from the cells. And it's very difficult to sustain a lack of air over a long period of time. And the other thing is... It's not a lack of air. You absorb in from your environment. That's amazing. So it's not coming in through the nose or through the mouth. We're able to take oxygen in. That's, that's incredible. So it's, I don't know anything about it. Nothing. Okay. Embryotic uh, breathing. Embryotic breathing. Yeah, because it's before you're born, you're in the um, embryonic fluid and you're obviously not using your lungs. All your needs are going through your yes. blood cord. Yes. It's, it's, it's yes. Um, opening up your oh, the channels which you used to use for, for breathing. So, yeah. That'll That's be, amazing. It is but actually, I could understand it. Oxygen is able to come from the from the mom into the baby, yes. and carbon dioxide is coming from the baby back into the mother. Mm-hmm. So the mother is able to to get rid of um, excess CO two through her lungs. But in terms of without an umbilical cord, how we can bring in oxygen, we have to assume it's coming in through the skin, and that the carbon dioxide is leaving through the skin. So yeah, I can't get my head around it, but I think it's very it's very fascinating. It'll be your next book, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, there's a new application. As I said earlier on, I'm in this field for 20 years, and the more I'm in it, the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> like, it's amazing. The potential is it's incredible. Now, you mentioned the diaphragm and breathing. Yes. Now, why is it so important to breathe using the diaphragm? The diaphragm is not just performing a function of respiration. Diaphragm is also very important for stabilization of the spine. If you think of the spine, you know, it needs something to support it. 
to prevent it from buckling, especially if, say, for instance, we were lifting a heavy weight. So it's through the breath, and we want to have a very natural breath in and a very normal breath in because it's the movement of the diaphragm moving back up to its resting position and then contracting on the inspiration, Mm -hmm. moving back up to its resting position on the exhalation that's generating intra-abdominal pressure. And it's this pressure that's very helpful for stabilization of the spine. It's very helpful in support for motor control um, and for functional movement. Because individuals with poor breathing, if you're breathing using the chest and you're shallow breathing, it can create respiratory alkalosis, but basically you're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide because of the fast, shallow breathing. This is inhibiting the release of oxygen from the red blood cells. But also respiratory alkalosis is agitating the central nervous system. So you've got increased brain cell excitability. You've got heightened perception of pain. So... You know, here's the ironic thing. People who are in a state of chronic pain and even people with lower back pain, people with lower back pain are very often very poor breeders because they're not utilizing their diaphragm for that stabilization. And this has been written about by osteopaths Leon Shato, but just more recently, a lot of papers coming out that are published in the Journal of the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy in the United States looking at the impact of dysfunctional breathing and diaphragmatic breathing is really important for, as I said, movement, stabilization of the spine, helping to prevent lower back pain. Um, And there's also lymphatic drainage there that the lymph system, the body sewage system doesn't have a pump of its own. It's reliant on the muscles of the diaphragm by virtue of the movement of the diaphragm that you're pumping lymph throughout the body. And also diaphragmatic breathing means that you're taking the air into the lower lobes of the lungs. And this is where the greatest concentration of blood is. But also when you're breathing through your nose, you're carrying nitric oxide into your lungs and and nitric oxide is redistributing the blood throughout the lungs. So you've got a better gas exchange taking place. And then finally, your diaphragm is directly connected with your emotions. So researchers like Bardoni, again, another Italian, I think he's a a cardiologist, but I think definitely he's a medical doctor. He talks about the connection of the diaphragm to the emotions. If you have upper chest breathing, you have agitation of the mind. And I would say to anybody, look at your breathing and compare that with the agitation of the mind. If you want to bring stillness of the mind, really slow down your breathing and start using your diaphragm. Right. Wow. How can people get hold of you or learn more about your breathing techniques? Sure. Just it's like we have quite a few videos that are up, you know, and books and everything. We're all keen on getting the information out there. Um, go to butecoclinic.com if you have anxiety, asthma, or sleep problems. So butecoclinic.com um, would be the best one. That's B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. And then for sports, it's oxygenadvantage.com. So improving fitness and performance. Now, we also bring in sleep as well for recovery for the athlete. There's YouTube channels there. Um, I've got a lot of videos looking at the theory in sleep. I've got presentations on anxiety, on sleep, on asthma, And my TED talk will guide you through a couple of the exercises, you know, because I think really it's about getting the information out there. I want to try and impart coming from being an asthmatic for 20 years, John, 
and it was not a nice condition. And I was sleep deprived. It's not just that people with asthma. We are tired all the time as well. Yes. And nobody told me to breathe through my nose in 20 years. Not one person. And no asthma societies aren't doing it either. I cannot believe. And here is the nose. Nature has designed a nose to filter, to moisten, to regulate volume, to improve oxygen uptake and delivery, to help with sleep, to help prepare the air before it's brought into the lungs. People with asthma don't breathe through their they don't breathe through their noses. Right. And it's aggravating their asthma and nobody's telling them any different. And I just I am often I'm flabbergasted by it. And I'm flabbergasted with sleep. Why are sleep doctors not telling their patients to breathe through their noses? We know you're twice as likely to have a sleep problem. Why are psychotherapists not addressing dysfunctional breathing patterns? And I'm not meaning telling the patient to take a deep breath because how is the patient interpreting that deep breath? Why are their dentists not teaching children to breathe through the nose? And I'm not going to go on a rant here, but you can see where I'm going with it. So our children's online course is free. If you go to butecoclinic.com and if you click on children, there's one hour course there with all of the exercises completely free. All you do is just put in your email and you get access to it. We made it free a few years ago just to try and impart these exercises. There's exercise on YouTube completely free and just to try and do it. You know, our, our motive isn't commercial. Of course, I make my living from this, but my main motive is get the information out there. Fantastic. Now, we've got um, to circumnavigate around this 12-second attention span. I'll let you have the last word, Patrick. If, if you can put it into one sentence or less, some advice to our friends who are listening, who are watching this video now, what would you suggest to them? Pay attention to your breathing. Breathe through your nose, breathe slowly, and use your diaphragm. Fantastic. Lovely. I've learned so much. I didn't know what to expect from this interview, but it's been fantastic. <laughs> Good stuff, John. Patrick I told you, breeding is not boring. It's a very exciting <laughs> topic. <laughs> no, it's been great. Hey, Patrick, thank you so much for coming to our show. You're very for, welcome. For accepting our begging for you to come on. <laughs> <laughs> Have a fantastic day, and, and thank you, viewers, for watching. And we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye.